Amen. It does not get old celebrating life change. Those were some testimonies from our past uh, baptism that we had this, this past June. Hey, if we hadn't met yet, my name is Ryan Stone. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the Church 1122. If you're new, we may have not met because I normally uh, worship at our Bay Meadows location. I'm normally over there hanging out with the saints over there, who, by the way, the saints at Bay Meadows say hello. We cheer for you guys at San Pablo often, and Bay Meadows, uh, San Pablo has been asking about you guys all morning. If you don't know, we are one church in many locations, meaning that we meet all over town, and it is, it is a lot of fun to be a part of a church uh, that is right now worshiping here and in, uh, in, in an old sneakers, and we're just worshiping across town, and, and, and the rumor is that more may be coming. And so get ready as God continues to bless us. If you've been here a while and you're thinking, God, this guy looks like one of our old pastors we used to have. I am. I'm just 70 pounds lighter. Like, I've lost, I've lost all of my children's weight, right? And uh, I have... Um, I've literally lost the weight of my kids combined. So uh, I, used to, I used to be Ryan Stone and now I am. So, hey, we're in the middle of a series called Again, and we're studying the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible because it's just this beautiful kind of combination of like brutality and then the relentless love of God. So it's like a, I, I think it's like a man's man's book, right? And so I love it. We've been digging into it. If you remember, if you were here in week one, Pastor Joby taught us about this cycle uh, of the Israel goes through throughout the book of Judges where they're surrendering to God, they're worshiping and they begin to kind of rely on themselves. And then they move over to uh, some type of idolatry and then they, they feel the pain of their sin. And then they come back and they surrender and they go, God, would you save us? And really, this is actually a more descriptive picture of the book of Judges. It's kind of this downward spiral. It really, the further you get into the book of Judges, um, the more uh, you see the depravity of man, right? We start out with Othniel, the first judge. He's a pretty cool dude. And then there was Ehud, and he was left-handed. Uh, and then there was Deborah, who had to step in and, and kind of save Barak. And then it got, we got to Gideon. And remember, the first week of Gideon, it was like, this dude's awesome. And then the second, we were like, this dude's not awesome. And so there's this kind of downward spiral of, of humanity and depravity as God continues to love his people. And this week, uh, we're going to study a guy named Jephthah. And uh, you may have never heard the story of Jephthah because it's brutal. And uh, I'll just maybe time out for a second. If you have kids in the room, this would be a great time for them to check out the uh, new gen ministry we have next door. It's phenomenal. And, and uh, I'm going to give you like five minutes before I start saying words that you don't want your kids to hear. Uh, and then I can't promise anything. But in the, in the book of Judges, chapter 10, we dig into the story of Jephthah. And what we find as you read through the text is that um, Israel was doing okay. And then they begin to kind of do what they call doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And it leads uh, to this concept that we're fine. They, they begin to anger God. The, the writer of Judges actually says that they, he lists out seven different gods. And what he is trying to, in a literary function, show us is that Israel had completely abandoned God. Like seven is the number of completion. So they have completely abandoned God and ran after other gods. And then they find themselves in a, in a fight with the Ammonites and they come to God and they go, God, please save us. And for the first time in the book of Judges, we see the cycle break down. Here's what I mean. Normally by this point, when they get to this moment of surrender, this moment of God come save us, God usually steps in with, with salvation. But in Judges chapter 10, verse 13, he steps in with sarcasm. Here's what he says. Uh, you have forsaken me and served the other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. 
Go and cry out to the gods of whom you have chosen and let them save you in your time of distress. In other words, God goes, hey, why don't you go get those seven other gods that have been your peeps? They've been awesome. They've had your back. Why don't you get them, put them together, let them be a dream team and see if they can get you out of this one. The cycle breaks down. There's a storm brewing. As we get to verse 17, we can see it brew even more. Then the Ammonites, they're going to be the bad guys the whole day today. The Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. So we're about to have a little battle. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. There's this storm brewing. It starts moving in. Don't miss this in verse 18. They're, they're about to go to war. And what do they do? They begin to speak to one another. They begin to go to one another and they go, what man is going to save us? Now, this is a big deal because Israel is God's people. The proper place to go with that question is not to each other. The proper place to go to that question is straight to God. God, who are you going to send to save us? And there's trouble brewing. In the midst of this trouble brewing, the wheels falling off the chariot of Israel is where we meet Jephthah. Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah, the Gileite, was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. See, now we're in the words you don't want your kids to know. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So here we go. We meet Jephthah. Here's some things we learn about him. First of all, he's a warrior. Like the Bible says, this is kind of his MO, which is good because Israel is going to need a warrior. But there was this problem. He was a warrior, but he was, this, he was the son of a hooker. He was the son of a prostitute and probably a foreign prostitute, maybe even a sex slave. So this guy, though he's fully an Israelite, he's got this checkered past, even though he's got a lot of competencies. The third thing we find out is that he got exiled to the land of Tob, which is near the land of Job, which is where Pastor Joby's named after, right? And so they exile him to Tob, uh, and, and, and that's where Toby's come from. And just so you guys know, across the nation, his name is Joby with a J. It's short for Joseph. I don't know how they do that in South Carolina. But we get uh, every week at Bay Meadows, Pastor Toby, that dude is awesome. He is. When I find him, I'll let him know. But he's for they, they, he gets exiled to modern day Syria, where he begins to just kind of live among the foreigners and live among the pagans. And he begins to live outside of the country of Israel and outside of the worship of the one true God. And then the fourth thing we know is that he becomes a crime boss, a land pirate. The language here of worthless fellows collected around him means this. He became like, like, Old Testament mafia, and he was the leader. Verse 4 After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel over and over again. This is the story. And just so you know, I'm going to make you, pun I'm going to punish you with me. This whole series, every time I've heard the word again, I think about that Tim McGraw and Nelly song over and over again. All in my head, I think of, all right, now you got to think about that too. Verse five, and when the, man, when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. 
This is a major, major issue. The storm's getting louder and louder and louder. Every single judge up until Jephthah, it says this. This is how they came into, into their place. It says that God rose up another judge. And yet we get here to Jephthah and God, God's not raising any judges up. They say to each other who we're going to go pick our leader. What we're going to talk about today is this, is this um, brutality of religion. And religion starts when man begins to try to accomplish an attempt to take care of things on his own in, to neglect of God. One of the things we're going to see throughout the text today is this, is that when man completely abandons God, man becomes completely responsible for his own being. So you've got these leaders of Jephthah who completely abandon God. War's about to happen. There's a crisis. They completely abandon God and they begin to get every, all of it into their own hands. You see, the opposite of this is true, that when, when man completely trusts God, God is completely responsible for the outcome. And so we have, we have a, a, a battle to kind of wrestle with. Do we trust God? Are we obedient and go, God, I trust you and you're responsible? Or do we abandon God's plan and take responsibility for ourselves? Playing God always seems liberating until it delivers the crushing blows of the reality that you and I do not make good gods. We don't make good gods for ourselves. We don't make good gods for others. And when we abandon God being God and try to take that responsibility, uh, we are on a path to a crushing blow. You're gonna, as we dig into the text, Jephthah is, is going to sacrifice his daughter. Like he's going he's gonna to lead Israel in child sacrifice. And then shortly after that, he's going to lead Israel into a civil war. When man completely abandons God's plan, man comp becomes completely responsible for the outcome. Verse seven, but Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Amorites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Israel comes to Jephthah and he goes, why, why, why do you want me now? Like you just didn't like me and now you love me. I, and Jephthah's going, you're just here to use me. And they go, no, no, we're not here to use you. We want to make you the head of Gilead. The problem is this, is that biblically God had already declared himself the head of Israel. And so Israel is asking of man what only God can, himself had promised to deliver. They're coming, going, be our judge and be our king and be our savior and be our comfort. And as I was studying this text this past week or two, um, the one question that kept coming up in, in my heart was this, is what am I asking man to deliver that only God can? Like, what am I turning to my spouse and to my kids and to my friends and to my boss going, deliver this for me? And God's going, they can't deliver that for you because God is the only one who can deliver to us what he has promised. So Jephthah becomes the, he becomes the judge, he becomes the kind of the leader, they put him in his place. And so he's off to negotiate with the Ammonite king. So he goes, they have these pre-war negotiations and as they begin to kind of uh, argue, um, the, the king of Ammonite, the Ammonite king, he goes, look, y'all took our land. And Jephthah goes, no, here's, here's three points. Number one, um, we didn't take your land, we took the Amorites' lands. Like y'all are the Ammon, like there's an N in your name, there's an R in their name, we took their land. So it wasn't even your land to begin with. Second of all, we didn't take, Israel didn't take the Amorites' land because we wanted it, we took it because Amor the Amorites picked a fight with Israel and Israel just kicked their butt and said, you know what, to teach you a lesson, we're gonna take the land. 
And so third of all, Jephthah goes, look, we, we wasn't your land to begin with. Um, we didn't want the land, but we had to kick their butt and we had to teach them a lesson. And he goes, and third of all, Jephthah tells the Ammonite king, if, you're, if your God wants you to have the land, then come and get it, big boy. It, it kind of like my five-year-old says this, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit, right? And so he's talking a little trash. He's talking a little smack. Jephthah says, look, hey, big boy, if Chamash, your God, wants you to have the land, come get it, biggin'. And he kind of picks a fight, doesn't go well. The Ammonite king says, you know what? We will fight. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead. Now he passed on to the Ammonites. Now it's about to get a little bit brutal. We're about to get into some of the text of the Bible that we don't really like to read because sometimes it's hard for us to figure out what to do with. And as I read it, some of you are gonna go, man, that sounds like a script from the Game of Thrones. Um, I'm not reading the script from the Game of Thrones, but uh, we'll talk about your poor choices and entertainment um, some other time. I'll just let that guilt ride on you and we'll talk later. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. The word whatever there really kind of could be translated to whoever. Like whoever comes out of my house, God, if you give me victory, I will, I will I'll offer them as a burnt sacrifice. To which sometimes you read verses like that in the Bible and go, I, th I think I got the wrong book. Like, is this still the Bible? It is. And, and we have to go, what in the world is going on here? The whole, the whole text today is going to point to this, this one statement that, that religion is brutal, that religion is painful. And, and the number one way that we can begin to sniff out religion forming amongst us is when we start conversations with God by saying, God, if you will, then I will. When we begin our approach to God in a negotiation, it is a telltale sign that we are moving into religion and religion is going to lead to pain. Here, here's the point for today. Religion is as dangerous as irreligion. We think about irreligion as acting as if God doesn't exist. I think religion is as dangerous as acting as if God doesn't even exist because both of them neglect the proper treatment of God's word. Jephthah tells God, I'll, I'm going to offer my, my whatever comes out of the door, I'm going to offer them as a sacrifice. God's word clearly says, do not offer humans as sacrifices. And so religion and irreligion both neglect the proper treatment of God's word and thus neglect the relationship offered to us by Jesus. They both neglect the relationship. Let me put this in a picture form for us. If we think about a relationship with Jesus being a cross-centered life, there are two ditches or two traps that can get us off and steer us from a cross-centered life. One of them is, is, is an irreligious life. If you just want to put some simple words on it, it's living for self-pleasure. Like being an irreligious life is for self-pleasure pleasure. This life is for me. I want to please myself. A religious life is when we begin to live for self-righteousness, where we begin to look at our own deeds and kind of mark up how good we think we are and how righteous we are based off how good we are, or really based off how much better we are than somebody next to us. And here's what's true about this. The temptation of self-pleasure and self-righteousness will always compete with a cross-centered life. Why? Because self-pleasure and self-righteousness, they promote self, but the cross crucifies self. 
See, when we come to the cross, we are saying, I am dead to my old self. I'm dead to my self-pleasure. I'm dead to my self-righteousness. I'm alive in Christ alone. And irreligion and religion will continue to push us from the cross because they promote self. And at the cross, self is crucified. Irreligion starts the conversation with our word and attempts to be the God of our world. Irreligion, moving this way from the cross, starts the conversation at my word in attempt to be God of my own world. If we want to think about it this way, the irreligion is when we ignore that God has even spoken and we replace his word with worldly passions. We act as if the Bible doesn't exist. We act as if God has not spoken. And it's really easy for us as we gather at church to go, you know what? I know some people who aren't here this morning. They're pretty irreligious. And yet I think there's some time even us in the church begin to act or begin to get in the trap or the ditch of irreligion. Let me just poke at us a little bit in the name of Jesus and comfort and love. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge sexually immoral and adulterous. That's in God's word. And yet sometimes even in the church, we, we treat sex like a commodity and we begin to approach sex as if, no, it's really about my pleasure. And what we do is we begin to remove the word of God in our life and replace it with the worldly pleasures that we seek. I hear these things all the time, but we're in love. Great. The Bible doesn't say anything about if you're in love, have sex. It says if you're in the covenant of marriage, sex was made for one man and one woman in the marriage bed. There's no loophole. There's no clause to get around that. But we're in love. You need to be in covenant. Or I'll hear this one too. Hey, I, I, I get it. Before I got married, I didn't have sex and then I'm divorced now. So I, I think that maybe that verse is for younger people. I looked in Hebrews 13 before and after it. There's no age clause on purity. Right? There's no life circumstance clause on purity. God's word says, hold, hold the marriage bed in a place of, uh, hold it up so it is pure and holy. And sex is, is not meant to just be thrown around like a commodity. Or how about this one? Ephesians chapter five, do not get drunk with wine. That is for debauchery. But be filled with the spirit. Let me, let me translate that one from you from English to English. It says, don't get drunk. If drink and drunk are the same word for you, don't do either, right? If you can't drink without getting drunk, then just, just avoid it all. And once again, I, I was looking for a clause for holidays and for wedding receptions. There's not one. <laughs> I thought July 4th would have been in there. I looked for it. I was like, well, you know, you're like, why is he talking about me and what I did on July 4th? I'm not, God is. I'm just the, I'm just the mailman, right? Isn't it really easy to just pretend like God's word doesn't exist? All right, now that I'm done picking on y'all, let me just look in the mirror, right? This is one that I fight and I have fought for years and the Lord has slowly given me victory. I wish he'd give it to me quicker. Talk about gluttony for a second. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame and with their minds set on earthly things. Can I just tell you, this is one that we, just, we don't really point out in people, you know? I mean, I was like 289 pounds and no one came to me and said, hey, I think we need to talk about your weight for two reasons. One, I carry it well. And two, like, if you look at me, you're like, if I pick on the fat guy, he could kill me, you know? Like, you, you just don't pick on this one. But, but here's what the Lord has recently been convicting me of over the last six, seven months. 
that for a long time, I grew up so good. I mean, I, we, I, didn't, drink, I didn't drink root beer out of IBC root, uh, root beer bottle because it was in a beer bottle. Like, that's the world I grew up in. Like, no IBC root beer because it's in a beer bottle. But I could probably, I've probably eaten more buckets of fried chicken and more McDonald's cheeseburgers. And it is so bad. At one point, Little Caesars called our house to check on us. Are you guys okay? <laughs> well, I mean, pizza, pizza, you know what I mean? Here, here's where the Lord, here's how the Lord's been convicting me here. That last, that last verse, I man, it says this, their God is their belly, their enemy is the cross. And their minds are set on earthly things. And it's so easy for me to set the word of God aside. And here's where the Lord's been convicting me. When I begin to consume things of this world, where does my mind go? Does it go to the glory of God or does it go to the pleasure of my belly? I begin to let that one sit on me. Oh, all right, one more and then we'll get out of this because nobody likes this anyway. Ephesians chapter four says this, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I'm convicted of this all the time. Raising our voices at our spouses and at our children means that we have to lower the voice of God in our own heart. For me to begin to yell at the very spouse and children God has gifted me with means I have to turn down the volume of his voice in my heart because I cannot both elevate his voice and elevate my voice. Religion. Religion's the other side of the gap here. If irreligion is, is forgetting as if God's word doesn't even exist, religion is where we begin to take God's word or we take our word and we begin to manipulate it. We use our word to start the conversation and attempt to manipulate God that he would have favor on us. See, religion at its roots is when we begin to promise to God things that nev- God never even asked for. Like if you look at the text here, Jephthah is promising God, I'll sacrifice the first person that comes out of my house. And God's going, I never asked for that. There's some, there's some things in religion that makes us feel good because we think we're honoring God, but we're not honoring him in any way he's actually asked of us. Like we begin to stack up our good deeds and our good actions and we, we take this plate of good things. We're like, God, look at us. How awesome are we? And he's like, I never even asked for that. And Jeremiah, the prophet says this, for in the day that I brought them out of that land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And you will walk all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. What's he saying? He's saying this, God's saying, when I brought... Israel out of Egypt. I didn't give them a rule book to follow. I just simply leaned in and said, hey, I'm your father in heaven. Listen to my voice and all will be well. Modern day religion looks like this. It's when we begin to value the spiritual gifts over the spirit. Like we begin along, we're like, I want all the spiritual gifts or I want this particular spiritual gift. And we begin to go, I want what God's given me more than I want, than I want God. Like I want the gifts over the giver. I have to wrestle constantly with this question. What if, and just think about this, what if God never ever gave you another good gift? Never ever. Like just never ever gave you another good gift. Here's my question. Would his presence be enough for you? Would his presence, just God, if you never gave me another good thing, just to dwell in your presence is all that I long for. We have to wrestle with this religious question of do we want God or do we want what's in his hands? There are so many times I approach God and I don't really want him. I just want what he has for me. I just want the good stuff. I just want the gifts. Another way that we struggle with modern day religion is we walk around thinking that God is delighting in our activities. Isaiah says it this way. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now I need to translate that 
to us, and this is a little crass, but he's saying like, it's, it's like a used tampon. You know, oh, I told you to take your kids out of here. You should have, right? Here's what, here's what Isaiah is saying. No matter how good you are, you bring it to God. You're like, God, look how good I am. And God's going, that's just a dirty garment. That's just a polluted garment. We, we can't do anything on our own that God goes, oh my goodness, thank you. I've always wanted one of those. God has never, ever asked you for your attendance at church. God has never, ever asked you how many weekends have you served in a row. God has never, ever asked you the number of mission trips you've been on. You know what our Heavenly Father has asked of all of us? That we'd hear his voice and obey his voice. That we would just listen to his word. That our identity would be rooted in him as our father. And then our activity would follow. Here's, here's the thing. Irreligion and religion both pull us from the cross. Pretending like God never spoke pulls us from the cross. Trying to manipulate what God said for our own well-being pulls us from the cross. But what the cross does is actually invite us into a relationship. Irreligion starts the conversation with our word trying to, for us trying to be God. Religion starts the conversation with our word and we're trying to manipulate God. And relationship starts the, word, starts the conversation with God's word. And the only thing we do from there is respond to his favor. You see, at the cross, at the cross, we, we know 100% that Christ is for us. If Christ is willing to die on the cross because our sins put him there, if someone dies for you, they are for you. The cross declares his favor for us. So now with this picture of irreligion, and religion in this truth of that the cross declares to us an invitation to relationship. We got to dig back in to the text. Jephthah goes to God and he makes this vow before God. He makes this vow saying, God, if you will do for me what I want you to do, then I'm going to do something special for you. And what I think Jephthah was attempting to do is I think Jephthah was saying, I will make this promise to God to get God's favor. God, if you just get me out of this, I promise, fill in the blank. That is religion, because what you are trying to do is go, God, if you'll do something for me, I am going to do something for you. The problem is at the cross, we've already been given God's favor. God's not sitting around going, I hope they do something really good today. No, he's going, Christ has already done it permanently on the cross. That the spirit, if you look at verse 29, the spirit of the Lord was already on Jephthah. He was already on this amazing recruiting trip. He was already gathering up an army. And, and here's what I want us to see here. Religion, religion is a trap because it is a self-propelled way to try to attempt to attain what Christ on the cross has already declared to be ours. You see, Jephthah comes to this moment where he comes before God and goes, God, let me, I'm going to attain from you favor. And God goes, you already have it. Jephthah goes, I'm going to attain from you approval by doing something for you, God. And God goes, no, 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 no. You already have my approval. God had already moved and put his spirit on Jephthah. And for us in this side of the cross, God has already put on us his favor. That you and I cannot work for God's favor. We can only receive it. The wages of Christ on the cross, his righteousness becomes our gift. Now we have to deal with the, this phrase, whatever, whoever comes out. Because it's, it's an important part of the text. And when we teach the word of God, we, we're, not gonna, we're not just not going to avoid this stuff. We're going to dig into the dirty part of the word of God. It says, whatever comes out. Here's what I think. I think from the very beginning, Jephthah is thinking, I'm going to sacrifice a human. Here's a few reasons. Number one, animals were not inside the house. 
I don't know if y'all know this, Pastor Joby went to Israel last year. Did y'all know that? I don't know if he's told y'all that yet. Um, if not, he'll tell you soon. But he, he wants to take some of you with him. And I was asking him, how big are those buildings? He's like, well, they're not big enough for animals. And it wasn't like they had pet sheep in the house, right? They were like, oh, this is my pet sheep. No, they, they had livestock, goats for, for dinner, not for petting. And so there were no animals in the house. So this whole concept that maybe he was gonna sacrifice an animal doesn't, doesn't make sense. The second reason is the Hebrew word used is the word that is used to greet another human. So, so Jephthah says, when, I'm, when I get home and greet the first human I greet, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sacrifice. Dr. Timothy Keller in his book, Judges for You, says that he believes wholeheartedly that Jephthah's hope was for a servant. See, Jephthah had a bunch of servants and he thought, man, I can just, I can just expend one of those servants and get God's favor. But why in the world would Jephthah make a vow like this? I think he was trying to please the God of Israel with the rituals of pagans. God, God actually says, do not sacrifice humans to me. And yet Jephthah, who had grown up in the land of Tob, all he had ever known was human sacrifice. It's a thing called syncretism. It's where you take these different uh, parts of different religions and you try to sync them together. And, and, and we see it all the time in the American church. Like if you've ever had a conversation with a believer and the word karma came up, you should go, time out, that's not a biblical value. Karma is, is actually, we stole it from somewhere else and tried to jam it in. If, you, if you've ever heard someone go, you just gotta pray this magical prayer. It's not a biblical value. Works-based righteousness, that you gotta be good to get God's favor is not a biblical value. Suffering does not mean that God is angry and punishing you. Sometimes God uses suffering for, his, for your own good and for his glory. All the time we try to sync together things we've heard in our culture. We're kind of, we got to wrestle through constantly. What spare parts am I adding to my faith? I think Jephthah is just trying to mesh all these different things he's heard in growing up into one faith. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aora to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities as far as Abel Ketam. And with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah goes on this kind of take, make Israel great again tour where he just takes the whole eastern border of Gilead and just wipes out 20 different cities, right? He's like Donald Trump before Donald Trump. He built a wall, right? And so he just takes it and clears it out and he just knocks out all of the inhabitants and he's, everything is going great. He's gone on a great campaign. Verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Like he, he comes running up. He's thinking, man, if a servant comes out, it's gonna be great. And his daughter comes running out with tambourines to celebrate that God has given them victory. And because of religion, he cannot celebrate. Because of religion, he is hurting deep down because he knows the promise that he has made. The pain of religion grows because it causes us to blame others. Instead of trusting the one who has taken your judgment and makes you righteous, religion forces you to judge others in an attempt to becoming self-righteous. What do I mean? I mean this, Christ went to the cross and took our judgment. If we would trust Christ, our judgment has been taken and we are righteous and holy and pure. 
However, religion, religion forces us to judge others because we are trying to become better and better ourselves. And so the only way to actually think of yourself righteously is to do this. You have to find somebody who is less righteous than you are and go, see, I'm not as bad as they are. You have to actually start judging other people in religion. It escalates. The pain escalates. We've probably all felt that pain where somebody has started to judge us and they're judging us because they have to make themselves feel more righteous or feel more self-righteous. That religion is a problem because it escalates. In verse 36, she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Like, like she just comes to her father and he's, she goes, whatever, why? Because this idea of foreign sacrifice wasn't foreign to her. It was normal. She had seen it. Not only had Jephthah gone and tried to adopt these other religions and cause him own self pain, but as the father, as the leader of his household, so the direction he goes is the direction the family goes. And this, this little innocent young girl goes, I guess this is what God wants from us. She said, let me do these, let me do these things. For two months, may I go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months. She departed, she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. It reminds me back of 2000 and year 2000. Y'all remember Y2K? Remember how the world was gonna end? Right, so Y2K, the world was gonna end and everybody was the end of 1999. We we're gonna party like it's 1999. And, and I don't know if you guys remember where you were at, like Y2K, some of you don't, but all I remember is I thought the world's gonna end. And I was at this kind of youth conference. We were worshiping Jesus and bringing in the new year. And I was begging the Lord, please, Lord, do not let the world end. I can't die a virgin, God. Like I can't, I need a few more years. I need an opportunity to meet a girl and get married. Dear Lord, I want Jesus to come back, but I just need a few more years before Jesus comes back. I I need, I please Jesus. You can do whatever you want. Just don't let the world end. Verse 39. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Now, some theologians try to soften this and say that maybe, it, maybe he just forced her to become a nun for the rest of her life. I don't think the text points to that. I think when the text says he did to her according to his vow, I think he did to her according to his vow that he offered her as a burnt sacrifice. Why in the world would Jeff to go through with this? First of all, I think he went through it because he did not have a functional understanding of grace. You see, Leviticus chapter five actually says, if you make a rash oath to the Lord, that's gonna cause evil and pain, there's a way out. You would go to the priest, you would confess it, you would offer a sacrifice. The priest would take the animal and sacrifice it in place of or atone for the human that you had committed to sacrifice. Like God had a grace outlet for this kind of stupidity. And yet, This this guy, Jephthah, nor his daughter knew enough of Leviticus, knew enough of God's word to go to the God of grace and ask him to be graceful. And so they just run down this path because they didn't understand. They didn't know God's word and know that God's word points to a God who is full of grace. The second reason I believe that Jephthah continued down this path is that he was just desensitized to the violence of his day and age. Child sacrifice was just normal. It just kind of happened everywhere. You would just sacrifice children. And, and, and he was kind of desensitized to it. And we, we look back and go, that is, I cannot believe that. 
And yet, if we want to be honest, our culture is desensitized to some things. Like, like a woman, for the, for the goal of sexual fulfillment and romantic fulfillment, can, can leave her family and wreck her family because the passion is gone. She can go to another man or, or even more celebrated in our culture. She can go and find another a woman and, and it would be celebrated because the passion was gone and good for her. That we live in a culture where a husband and a father can neglect loving his family in order to get the job done. And as long as he says something like this, it's just the only way to get it done in the sales business. Then we go, no problem, no problem. Or this, we live in a culture that's desensitized to the matter of inconvenience, that it's an inconvenience for someone to carry a baby to full term and to deliver a baby. And so in our culture, we say, you know what? Turn, turn your head the other way. Abortion is okay. It's easy to look at Jeff and go, I can't believe that that violence didn't make him angry. And yet every single day in our culture, we look at violence and we get more and more immune to it. We're not that far from the culture of Israel. I think the third reason that Jephthah went through with this sacrificing of his daughter is that I think from the very beginning, Jephthah's intent was to just add God to his collection of gods and worship the God of Israel with pagan rituals. And instead of having seven gods he could worship, he now has eight. Here's the major problem. The volume of Jephthah's world was louder in his head than the volume of God's word. Like the volume of the culture and the world around Jephthah had a more influence in Jephthah's life than the very word of God. You see, God's word says that there is enough grace to get out of this. God's word says, abhor everything that is evil. God's word shows us that that we should worship one true God. If Jephthah just got that commandment, the first commandment, that you should have no other, you should have one God, no other gods, then Jephthah would have gotten out of this going, you know, one God, whatever it takes, that I don't don't want to worship you like a pagan. Here's here's why religion is so dangerous. Number one, because it deals in unregulated power. It deals in unregulated power. So Jephthah comes and he, he is going to offer those under his authority for his own gain, for his own pleasure. And let me just say this, in a church our size, between here, the sanctuary and Bay Meadows and anybody listening on the podcast, here, here's what I know. I know that in a church our size, there are men and women in this room right now who the only reason you came back to church is because you heard this one was a little different. And the last church you were at, someone abused you spiritually, mentally, sexually abused you. And on behalf of the church, I apologize to you. I'm so sorry that someone abused the authority that you let them have to, to use you into, for their own gain. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. That is religion that hurts. Some of you, it may not have been a pastor or a church leader. It may have been a poor dad. It may have been a an uncle or a man in your life or a woman in your life that just abused you verbally and sexually and began to manipulate God's word to hurt you. And I, I apologize for the church. Second reason why I think religion is dangerous is not only does it deal in unregulated powers, it deals in unexpected promises. That, that religion is rooted when we go and try to promise things to God that God never, ever Asked for. Now, some of the things we promise to God, we promise because we think that it's a Bible verse. Like our culture has told us God, can't give, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. And we just believed it to be a Bible verse. It's not in the Bible. 
God gave Jesus way more than he can killed him. Killed him, brought him back, right? And we, we look culturally, some of it's because it's self-righteous. We think if I could just promise things to God that gets him on the hook with me, if I just promise him, I'm not, I'm not gonna say that word anymore. And then if I stop saying that word, he's like, oh my goodness, you're so awesome. What do I owe you? Like that's where it's an unexpected promise. And here's the, here's the danger with unexpected promises is here's what it leads to. It leads to unrealistic expectations of others. I start promising to God things that I think will get me, get him on the hook with me. And I'm like, God, I'm gonna do this. And then I fail because the only thing I can do in my word is fail my word because I'm really good at failing. And then if I, as I begin to fail my word, I now have to turn around and put the, the unexpected promises that I've made to God. I have to start laying that on other people so that other people feel the weight and the guilt. And maybe they'll fail worse. And if they're worse than I am, then at least my expectations of, expectations of them gets me off the hook for being so bad. That is where religion destroys us. I just want to be honest with you. This is one area of my life that I have fought for from every single day of my life. That religion escalates the pain because it requires us to expect of others what God is not even expecting of others. By the grace of God, my, I don't have many scars in my life. I don't have a whole lot of stupid mistakes by the grace of God, he has walked me through life. I, I'll turn 32 this year and I just don't have a whole lot of regrets. But I got one regret that, that, that weighs on my soul constantly. The regret, and really the only regret I have in life is, is what I've expected of other people in the name of religion. And I can give you story after story, but I don't think there's one any better than, than the way that God crushed me and broke me of it. I'll be married for 10 years in a few weeks. My beautiful wife, Blair, she's on the front row over here and, and she really likes it when y'all give her hugs afterwards and talk to her. She's, she's more introverted than a, than a library book and um, <clears throat> she loves it. But, but 10 years, like we've been married for 10 years, which is like, if there is such thing, as, like she is a saint, right? They just make a shrine to her, 10 years. We started dating and as we began to date, um, we began to just talk about boundaries and talk about our past and talk about our stories. And um, I, I just kind of arrogantly said, you know what? If we get married, you'll be the first woman I've ever slept with. Not like to the glory of God, but to the how awesome am I, right? I have so much self-control. I am, I am amazing. And she began to share her story, which is a little different. She says, well, Ryan, you need to know this. I was raped when I was 13 and, and for high school I didn't, I didn't know that you could separate being in a relationship with a guy and having sex with a guy. And so, Ryan, you're not the first one. And here's where the Lord crushed me. In a moment where she was telling me what God had saved her from, a moment in which I should have swollen up with compassion and love and gratitude for the Lord. I swelled up with anger and with pride. And I said, God, are you kidding me? I've saved myself for marriage and this is what you, this is what you give me? Why can't she be perfect like me? And in a moment, the Lord leaned over on me with the full weight of heaven and said, look here, son, you are not perfect. And what you were expecting and asking of her, I didn't even ask of her because God didn't expect Blair to be perfect. He sent Jesus to the cross to make her perfect. And he reminded me in that moment that my own arrogance and pride as a religious person was now expecting of Blair things she couldn't accomplish that only the cross could accomplish. And in that moment, I learned more about grace than I had learned in my entire life. So on behalf of men like me, who have taken their arrogance and taken their pride and taking how good they can be and held it over you as an expectation, I'll tell you, that's not the gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that someone expects something of you, but that Christ has already accomplished everything for you. So we're going to wage war on religion. If there's one thing my life's going to be about, it's going to be about waging war on religion. Here's how we're going to do it. The volume of God's word has to be louder than the volume of our world. The volume of God's word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, has to be louder than the volume of culture, has to be louder than the volume of self-pleasure, has to be louder than the volume of self-righteousness. And here's how we're going to do that. We We have to know God's word. We need to love God's word. And we need to live in relationship with God's word. Now, uh, Jonathan Vinke, who's, who's a good friend of mine, he's one of our worship leaders here, he said this the other day. He said, God's primary means of revealing his character is a book. Have you ever thought about that? Like the primary way that God reveals himself to us is in a book. He said, we don't get the option to say, I'm not a big reader. Because God said, hey, you want to know me? Here's a whole book about me. Like the whole Bible from cover to cover is the declaration of God's character. Think about it this way. Jesus is a rabbi. What do rabbis do? They teach. What do students do? They learn. If Jesus is going to be our rabbi, obeying Jesus requires that we know what Jesus said. Waging war on religion requires us to know the voice of our shepherd. Now we live in a culture, we've got more resources than we've ever had. The church has more resources than we've ever had before. And yet I think we're resource paralyzed. Like we have this kind of trust the expert mentality of, you know what, I'm going to do podcasts and and I can't read my Bible without a Devo. And I'm just going to show up on Sundays and kind of plug in and get fed. And then like, like, and then I'm going to go home. We have this whole trust the culture, trust the experts culture. And it's dangerous. Here's what I was thinking about this week. Did you know that the church existed for centuries without Lifeway? Like this existed, right? I mean, before, before Jesus calling was a book, Jesus had actually already called. And it was actually his words and not somebody trying to make up his words for him. You see what I think about that book. Uh, anyway, um, I, here's what I want to do for the last, we have a few minutes left. And I just want to, I just want to teach you real quickly um, a, a way to study the Bible. It's the way I study the Bible. It's the way I teach anybody who wants to ask for me, how do you study the Bible? This is what I teach him. I borrowed it from our friends at Austin Stone Church in Austin, Texas. And it's just simply this, it's called REAP. In fact, if you want to pull your bulletins out, we have the whole thing in there. You don't have to write any notes. You can just listen for a few minutes and then you can take that home with you and and work it out. Uh, And here's what REAP is. REAP is a really, really simple model to just read the Bible. In fact, the first step of REAP is this. You want to read. If you just want to read, and here's what I would encourage you to do. Grab the reading plan that's in the bottom of our bulletin every single week and use that reading plan and just read. I would encourage you, don't start in the front cover and try to get to the back. The Bible's not necessarily a novel. Um, You're going to get to like Leviticus and go plot twist. What just happened? You're going to get confused. And so I would just say, you know, start by reading the reading plan. And here's what we're going to do. You're going to take the reading plan and you're just going to read it. And then you're going to ask these questions. What's happening here? Like just a basic literary function. What's happening in this text? What things are being emphasized or repeated? Think about it this way. Um, If you read John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world. Then you ask this question, what do you see about God? It's not complicated. What do you see? God is loving. I just write that down. What is God doing in the passage? He's saving the world. That's pretty good. What do you see about man? Man needs saved. Now, the second thing we're going to do is examine, and you're going to actually write down your answers here, right? So women, get out your journal. Men, you get out a notebook, right? 
or a journal, it's the same thing, all right? And we're gonna write down the answers. I want you to literally ask your question, yourself this question. How do you think the author wants his audience to respond? What did you learn about God's character? So if you're reading John chapter three, verse 16, and you're like, Jesus, God so loved the world, what do we just learn about his character? His character is loving, all right? What, what, what wrong beliefs did I have about God? Well, you may have in that moment, you may have to say to yourself, you know what? I don't really know if I really believe that God is loving. You see, the word of God begins to change us. The third thing we're gonna do is we're gonna apply it. So we don't wanna just like go look in a mirror and not fix our hair. We're gonna go look in the mirror and go, what, what, how do we apply this? And, and really two questions, where do I need to repent? It, it might be that you read, for God so loved the world, and you thought, I don't even love the world. Like God loves the world and he wants me to be like him and I don't love the world. And we need to repent of that. And the second thing is, what am I gonna do empowered by the Holy Spirit to apply this passage? I just want you to write down one thing you can do, right? Be more loving. I'm gonna get on an airplane later this afternoon. And you know, one thing I'm gonna do, uh, I'm just gonna be kind to the idiot in front of me who doesn't know how to take their belt off, right? It says it on the sign, take your belt and shoes off. I'm gonna be kind to them today. I'm just gonna love the world like God did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And then finally, finally, we're gonna pray and write out your prayer. Right? And so just every day, every morning, get, get the reading plan out. If you miss a morning, don't worry. It's like working out, all right? If you miss a morning of working out and you quit, you're an idiot. Like just the next day, get up and work out again and read God's word, examine it, apply it, and pray, pray through it. Learning, learning is an act of worship. It's a, it leads to knowing God. Did you know that the goal of worship is not a feeling, but the goal of worship is Intimacy. You cannot have intimacy with God without knowing God. Become learners. Study God's word. Know God's word. And knowing God's word automatically leads us to love God's word. Why? Because we begin to read God's word and then we go, oh my goodness, it is full of life. It reveals his character. And when we begin to know more about God through his word, our depth of love for his word exponentially grows. I, I believe this. I, don't believe, I believe you cannot love God without loving his word. You can't. It's the very place that God reveals his character and nature to us. Do this. Try to love your spouse, your children, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your best friend. Try to love them without knowing anything about them. It's useless. You see, I wanna know everything I can know about my wife because I wanna love her more deeply. I wanna love her more intimately. I wanna love her more thoroughly. I have to know her. You cannot rightly stir your affections for the Lord without first stirring those affections through his word. Without first stirring those affections through the Lord. We gotta know his word. We gotta love his word. And then the last one is this. We need to live in a relationship with God's word. This is kind of a little play on words because John chapter one tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Like John says that Jesus is the manifested expression of God's character. That he is the fulfillment of God's word. And so as we study God's word, we fall in love with God's word. And as we fall in love with the Bible, we fall in love with the one in whom the whole Bible declares to be our Lord and Savior. I think we have to begin to realize that the whole Bible is a gift from God to us that points us to a relationship with Jesus. It does not point us to religious activity. It doesn't point us to, to trying to lord over expectations. But religion, religion is based on man's attempted efforts to reach God. 
And the relationship that's given to us through the Bible, that's declared through the Bible, that's given to us through the cross, it's actually rooted in God's accomplished efforts to redeem man. So religion says, hey, I'm attempting to get to God. And relationship says, God, God has already accomplished the redemption. My prayer for us is this, is that we as a church would be people of the word. What if, what if we turned up the volume on God's word in our life? and we turn down the volume of the world? What if we forsook religion for relationship? And what if we abandon irreligion for intimacy? Here's where it starts. Here's where relationship starts. It starts in knowing God's word, both the literal written Bible and the literal person of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you so much and we love you that you first loved us. That your word declares that you long to have intimacy with us and all the things of this world, all the irreligion, all the self-pleasure, it just kind of pulls us as hard as we can. It pulls us away from you and you're longing for intimacy and as it pulls us away, it pulls us into a place of isolation. And religion, God, you'd have already declared us to be good and yet religion tries to force us to think we can somehow be better than perfect. So Lord, we just come to you and we ask you in this moment to give us a hunger for your word. God, would you encourage us this week to study your word? God, it's in your precious, it's in your holy and powerful name we pray. Amen. So church, we, we want to be the church that roots ourselves in the Bible. I mean, we want the truth of the Bible to transform our minds. We want the beauty of the Bible to stir our affections for the Lord. We want the instructions of the Bible to direct our steps. We want the scripture to be what actually directs the way we worship. It's why we sing, Colossians says this, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's, the way, it's why we preach verse by verse because all scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. It's the way we do baptism. We just look at the word of God and say, you know what? Baptism is the public proclamation of faith. And that's why we celebrate it. It's also why today we're gonna celebrate the sacrament of communion. You see, Jesus instituted it for the church and perfected it on the cross. First Corinthians chapter 12 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So in light of God's word today, we're gonna celebrate communion. There are baskets on the outside of each row. And if you pass it, take the elements. I want to encourage you with a few things. First of all, if you're, a, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're invited to his table. It's not my table. It's not our table. It's his. I would encourage you though, if you're not a believer to refrain from taking elements. I promise you, first of all, that there will be nobody judging you. 
In fact, what we're doing is praying for you that one day as you continue to check out this man named Jesus, that one day you would surrender your life to him and then you would come to the Lord's table as a believer and celebrate the goodness of his body and his blood. As we pass the baskets, I also wanna encourage you as a believer to follow the words of 1 Corinthians, to examine your heart, to confess where you have walked irreligiously and acted as if God's word doesn't exist and to confess where you have walked religiously and tried to be good enough on your own. And in examining your heart, you would just repent those things to the Lord and know that you are free because the cross has declared your freedom. So Jesus took the bread that night and he broke it and he passed it. And he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of Christ. Then he took the cup and he, he passed the cup and he said, this, is, this cup represents my blood, which is gonna be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. celebrate communion and we re-experience grace and we re-engage the gospel. We have a tradition that we follow in the church in the book of Matthew. It says that after they got done with the first ever communion that they stood and they sung a hymn. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you church to stand and we're going to sing. And we pick this song on purpose. We pick this song because it declares, this is what I believe. I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so as we stand, this is a time, if this is your home, to go and to respond uh, by giving of your tithes and offerings. This is an opportunity to come and to continue to pray and be thankful for what Christ has done for us on the cross. And this is a time for us as the church to literally turn up the volume on what we believe and to sing as loud as we can that I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.